to love the Lord our God from the inside out. Amen? Um, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace to us, which is revealed in Jesus Christ through the cross and through the resurrection. Father, through the cross, you demonstrate the cost that you are willing to pay in the life of your Son to take away our sin, that we might be reconciled, redeemed, adopted into your family, and made new, given new, the new birth and new life through faith in Christ. And Father, through his resurrection, you show not only that death had no power over him, but that it one day will have no power over us either, that Jesus Christ is the first fruits from among the dead, and then we who are to follow after will also be resurrected with him into your presence, into an inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade, but which is kept in heaven by your power for us who are your children. And Father, we look forward to the great day. Father, between now and then, we pray that we would be obedient, that we would not simply come here and worship you and take in your word, but that it would penetrate to the depths of our hearts and that your spirit would motivate us to obedience, to living out the gospel and to putting into practice the things that we know. And Father, we pray uh, for this service that, um, that your word would open itself up with power to your people, power to transform lives and to make us into uh, reflections of the Son of God, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, Chili Bible. I'm glad that you are here this morning. I'm glad you decided that the rain was not going to slow you down. Had to get over here and sing with your brothers and sisters and make your offerings and hear the Word of God read and preached. Amen? I'm glad you're here, because this is a great day. Every day is a great day. Any day you wake up on the green side of the grass is a good day. Any day you wake up on the other side in glory in the presence of God is a better day. But nevertheless, He has left you here for a purpose. He has a plan for your life. If you're still breathing when the smoke clears, God still has something He wants to accomplish through you in the here and now. Amen? And if you're visiting with us uh, here this morning, let me extend my very special welcome to you. I really hope that you will join in the family here because this is a good place to worship Jesus and to learn to serve with your talents and gifts, to reach out to the community and to grow in your faith. This is a good place. If you're looking for a good church, you can stop looking. You found one. Plug in, okay? And I'd love to help you to do that. A big part of growing in your faith and learning to worship Jesus and serve and to uh, share with others is comes through the study of God's Word and applying and obeying what we learn together as the people of God. And I was out of the pulpit this last week, so you may not remember what we talked about last time I was with you, but we're studying through 1 Corinthians, And one of the things that Paul consistently emphasizes is that the unsaved world around us not only thinks differently than a Christian should, but that the things that it values, the things it upholds, 
the things that are honored in our culture form together a, a set of uh, things which are alien to us as believers. And because of that fundamental conflict between our thoughts and values which come from the Spirit of God and uh, speaking to us through His Word and, and theirs that are informed by their natural sinful desires and thoughts, they look at us and they see ignorant, benighted fools. How many of you ever been mocked because you believe in Jesus Christ? I have been. How many of you have ever had, had an experience where you're watching TV and somebody talks about the kind of Christian you are as one of those ignorant, easy-to-command fundamentalists? Right? Had that experience? Okay. We are... That's, by the way, not unexpected. That comes with the program. Part of the deal is that you hold to a set of alien-to-the-world values. That you worship a God that other people look at that and they go, no, nah, that's just crazy. God can't become a man, and if He can become a man, He can't die, and if He does die, He can't rise from the dead. And yet that is the message that we proclaim is the salvation of the world. And the thing is, is that if you wind up focusing your life on the wrong things, when you put the emphasis of your life on the wrong stuff, then you are the one who ultimately winds up as a fool. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm a gun guy, okay? I like guns. I have guns. I have single shots. I have semi-automatics. I have uh, pumps. I have rifles. I have shotguns. I even have one handgun. Uh, and I like guns. And I like to look at guns. And when I when I can, I go to gun stores and I pick them up off the rack and I fantasize about owning one, you know. And um, my wife drives, is driven crazy by this. Okay, I've done this our entire marriage and I think she's hoping one day I will grow out of it. But nevertheless, I like guns. And if you are a gun guy, you've probably seen pictures or you have books of all different kinds. The ones I really like are the ones that are about $150,000 each. And that are fit together in such a way that you cannot close the action with a piece of paper in it because it won't shut. It's just that machine that finely. And they have all this beautiful scroll work and this exhibition grade walnut that's carved and checkered and all this beautiful engraving and so forth. And if you have one of these, you know, it's a lot of times perfectly made just for your body. The way that your face comes up on the stock and all this kind of thing, right? Maybe you're not a gun person, but I kind of get into this stuff. But one thing that you have to have absolutely is a firing pin. And another thing you have to have is a hole in the barrel, right? If you do not have either one of those things, the whole rest of it, as beautiful as it may be, doesn't do anything. It's just... You know, it's just a really expensive paperweight, right? The whole point of having a gun is to be able to go out to the gun club and shoot it, right? Not just to have a nice decoration, it's to shoot it, right? Or maybe you're a car guy, right? And just imagine you have a beautiful, pristine 68 Camaro, 
in that beautiful, rich, deep, metallic black. And leather seats and everything about it is just original and spectacular. But it has no engine. Kind of pointless, right? Or imagine, ladies, that you have your husband went and he, he went to Chanel and he bought you the most spectacular couture dress that they had. But it's the wrong size. And they do not take exchanges or returns. Looks good in the closet. Got a nice label in it. But it doesn't function, doesn't serve any purpose, right? It's just there. And all that craftsmanship and all of that effort does you no good, right? You can't do with it what it is that, you're, that it's there to do. And that's kind of the idea that Paul is talking about when he talks about preaching in the Spirit. In the first five verses of where we are today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my, mess, my speech and my message We're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul planted a church in Corinth about three years prior to this letter, and since then, a multitude of problems have cropped up. And what Paul is trying to do in this letter to the Corinthians is try to walk them back to the beginning and help them remember how they got started. Because all of the problems of the church in Corinth are traceable to the same root issue, and that is that they have taken the culture's values and the culture's morality and the culture's thoughts on all kinds of things, and they have just imported it right with them into the church and how it functions and how they relate to one another and how they worship and how, how they believe in God even. They've allowed, instead of being salt and light in the culture, they've allowed the culture to be salt and light in the church. And that's problematic. And so Paul is trying to, to bring them back. And one of the ways that that shows up is in all the factions and divisions that he has just been talking about back in chapter 1. He's going to talk about that two more times as the book progresses, but he addresses it first in chapter 1, and then he's going to pick up a couple more later. And a chunk of that factionalism is based in a worldly preference for, among some of them for style over substance, for flash over content. And so Paul, in these verses, is reminding them, this is how you came to faith through my preaching. And when Paul preached, he was not an impressive guy. Now, I don't know if you ever uh, listen to other preachers on the radio. I would encourage you to do that with some level of discernment. There are some guys out there that are spectacular and some that are either ordinary or heretical. 
All right? But if you ever do that, all of those guys have a fantastic voice for radio. When I listen to myself on tape, I go, surely I do not sound that dorky. But apparently, I do. Right? But Paul, when you read him, he was this forceful, powerful, educated guy as you read him. And then when you meet him, he was apparently not much. You know, he, he was a Jewish lawyer and looked like it. Couldn't see very well. And he's just this kind of little, not very impressive guy. If you met him, you would not, you know, it's not like in the paintings, you know, where there's like a light that comes down and a halo around him, you know. He was just kind of this ordinary looking dude. And he says, I didn't come with a big impressive display, making sure that you all could understand, you know, how gifted and educated and skilled I was. He was a well-educated man, but he didn't put his education on display. He didn't try to impress people into some sort of kind of vague belief in Jesus based on the persuasiveness and eloquence of his speech. He says, look, I'm not going to demagogue. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to just try to crank up your emotions and, and try to motivate you to believe in Jesus. In fact, he says, I didn't try to make myself look good at all. He says, when I came preaching to you, I came relying not on my training as a lawyer, not on my educational attainment, which was substantial, not on my vocabulary or my talents, but on the power present in the gospel message itself. And he says, I came in the power of the God who entrusted the gospel to me. And he says, I'm, I was determined when I came to you because you were a people who's impressed by style not to be stylish. I'm determined to have all the things that are naturally mine stripped away so that Jesus can be seen, so that I don't get in the way of you seeing Jesus. And if you've never tried to do that kind of thing before, especially in a public setting, it's a fearful experience. And so Paul says, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Because I, wasn't, I was determined I wasn't going to rely on myself, but on the power of God. And if you've never done anything really, truly scary, remember one of the mission strips that I took, we went to the town square in, um, in the capital city of Slovakia. And uh, we're trying to draw a crowd. We're doing some painting and so forth down in there. And all of a sudden, we've got a crowd, and it's my turn. Share the gospel, buddy. We're going to translate for you. Have at it. And there I am, and there's a crowd of about 60 people, and there's all these people in pubs and so forth around. And this is what I said to the Lord. Help. <laughs> because I... I was recently graduated from seminary. I was not equipped to do this. I'm like, Lord, all my training is eyeball to eyeball across the table with a cup of coffee. I do not know how to be a street preacher, keep people from walking away while I'm trying to share the gospel. 
And we did it for two weeks. I had lots of opportunity. And then I began to pray, Lord, we hold this treasure in jars of clay. That this all-surpassing glory would be from you and not from me. Let, he, let your son be seen in what I'm about to say. <laughs> because I don't know how to do this. And if you're going into a foreign city trying to speak to people with whom you do not share a common culture, the gospel had better come through and Jesus better empower what you're about to do because otherwise you're fixing to fall flat on your face, son, in front of a group of people. And so Paul says, look, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, he says, but I did it anyway. Why? Why did he do it that way? Because Paul does not want people to be motivated to follow Jesus based on some sort of emotional experience or based on some kind of brilliant rhetoric that he's able to, to crank up so that people somehow believe that they are saved when they are not. Does that still happen, by the way? Do people still mistakenly believe that they are saved because they had some sort of emotive emotive experience when they were nine and they have not been to church since they don't currently try to obey anything in the scriptures but they still believe they are saved because hey i went down the aisle prayed the prayer vbs not necessarily is that person a follower of jesus Paul says, look, I don't want you to just have some sort of emotional experience or some sort of, uh, you know, reaction to my rhetoric. He says, I want to see in at coming out through my preaching the genuine power of the Spirit of God by which people are converted so that it's a genuine conversion. Because the hardest people to lead to faith in Christ are not atheists. They are not people of another religion. They are people who already believe that they know Jesus when they are lost. And he says, look, I want your conversion to take place through the Holy Spirit's power. And so I tried as much as possible to get myself out of the way because you can't work your way up to salvation. You can't manipulate people into it. Either people are saved by God's Spirit powerfully working in their heart to bring about redemption and regeneration and reconciliation and justification from sin at the new birth, or they are not saved at all. Either the Spirit saves people, or they are not saved. And Paul says, look, I don't want to in any way mislead people by human effort using human means to, into thinking that they are saved when they aren't. And that is what it means when he says that I want your faith not to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because if you aren't saved by God's power, you aren't saved. Let's keep reading. He says, yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, though not a wisdom of this world or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, 
What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Even these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, here at the beginning, verse 6, Paul's saying, look, don't misunderstand. I'm not an anti-intellectual. He isn't advocating that Christians should be ignorant or uneducated. God uses all the training and all the experiences that we have to bring glory to himself. But, he's saying, what is wisdom to a believer in Christ might not appear to be wisdom to somebody outside the faith. And so he says, we impart wisdom to the mature. Well, who are the mature? They are the people who realize that God upends the wisdom of the elite of of our society and who understand that the gospel is something which ought to not only save them but also work itself out in all of its implications in their daily life. That's what maturity looks like. As you believe the gospel, you Continue to live it out, to live that transformed life, to have it work itself through every aspect of your life, how you think, how you work, how you relate to your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you talk to other people, all these things branch off from the gospel. Remember, what's our theme verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2? I'm resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because that is the center point of the wheel of your life. You put Jesus right there with the gospel and then it spokes out from there into all these other areas of your life. If you understand Jesus and the gospel, you understand a whole lot of stuff. And it leads to maturity. He says, look, All the rulers of this age, all the people who were the ruling elite, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. All these guys that are the elite now, they're all going to pass away. They're all going to be one day gone. He says, the secret and hidden wisdom of God, it's like there's this Open secret, right? How many people in our culture know what Christians believe? Virtually 100%. Know that, you know, there's something about Jesus and a crucifixion and a resurrection and all that. Lots and lots of people know that. Lots of them know that. It's not a big mystery what it is we believe. But what is a mystery, what is the hidden wisdom of God, is being able to embrace that truth for yourself. All kinds of people hear the message and know what it says. But only those who are wise 
and mature from God's perspective actually believe it. And Paul gives an example. He says, look, if the Jewish leaders had believed in what God was doing and revealing in Jesus' day, they wouldn't have conspired to put him to death. That seems pretty obvious, right? If you actually understood that this man, this Galilean peasant who was raised by a carpenter and his wife, who was thought by everybody to be their illegitimate child, who was born in a barn, that that guy actually is the Messiah God had predicted, they would have embraced him rather than tried to arrest him. And he says, and if... And if the rulers of this world had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, the Romans didn't understand either. Pilate didn't get it. If he understood the wisdom of God, he wouldn't have given in to the crowd and sent Jesus out to be scourged and crucified. That wouldn't have happened. Why? Because he'd have understood the wisdom of God, that God is present in this man. To bring salvation to the world. But it totally passed them by. Despite all of their wealth, despite all of their education, despite all of their sophistication, despite all of their position, everything passed them by. And they went, what? What are you talking about? Lord and Savior of the world? Foolishness is what they thought. But then Paul quotes Isaiah, chapter 64. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. In Hebrew thought, these are three areas of cognition. The eye, the ear, and the heart. The eye are the things that you can observe. In other words, you look around and you see aspects of the world as it is. And you listen to what you're taught, right? Some of the things that we learn that are true, we don't investigate them for ourselves. We hear them from other people and we know that they are true because they are consistent with reality. But he also talks about, he also mentions the heart. Now women are a lot of times better at this than men, but somehow just in their heart they in intuitively know some things they couldn't possibly know right every married man who's ever been asked where have you been knows that this is true right they intuitively know some things that they could not otherwise know and Paul says look he quotes Isaiah and says look God is working in a way that we couldn't have necessarily observed empirically and therefore predicted well surely this is what God is going to do because look at this and this and this that we've observed and so therefore God's going to do it this way uh, no and what was passed down from generation to generation of of the Old Testament and the, the people's understanding of it nobody saw a suffering Messiah even though it was right there in Isaiah for them to read and he says, and you didn't imagine it either. You didn't intuitively know it. You didn't just go, well, I don't know how I know that Jesus is the Messiah, but he is. I just know. He says, no. 
None of those pathways worked. You had to have it revealed to you directly by God's Spirit. None of these are adequate pathways to arrive at the gospel. Because who proclaims that a dead prophet really is the Son of God, never mind that he isn't actually dead but rose again? Nothing about that message fits with our daily experience of reality. And yet, it's true. And it's the only message with the power to save us from sin and death and hell. How do we know? Because the Spirit of God has revealed the truth of the gospel to us. And so even though we couldn't have used our mental faculties to come to this conclusion, nevertheless, the Spirit of God at work in us has drawn that conclusion for us and we have become convinced of it. And how do we know we've learned from what the Spirit of God, that what we've learned from the Spirit of God is true. Well, Paul answers that question. Verse 11, or verse 10 here, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, you know things about yourself as an individual person that nobody else could know unless you tell them. Because they are within you and nobody can access your private thoughts. And Paul says, in the same way, how can you know the things of God? Well, you can't unless God decides to reveal himself to you. Well, how does he do that? By the Spirit of God revealing the things of God to the people of God. How do you know they're true? Because the Spirit revealed them. And the Spirit knows who God is and what He thinks because He Himself is God. And so the Spirit proclaims from the depths of God's mind the wisdom of God that is the gospel. And so, Paul says, when we come to faith in Christ, we receive not the Spirit of this age. We don't get the zeitgeist, you know, the kind of the the generalized idea of what's current in the culture, we get the Spirit of the living God who makes known to us the things that we could not know and would not believe apart from the Spirit of God empowering and indwelling us. And we learn from the indwelling Spirit and embrace truths taught by the Spirit so that we know God through the Spirit. And so when Paul preaches, or more generally when the Word is preached, people who have the Spirit embrace it. But all of the things of the Word of God seem confusing to people who don't have the Spirit. And Paul fleshes that out a little more in his last few verses. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now Paul's got a contrast here between the natural person and the spiritual person. And the natural person here is someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God. That is, they are not a believer. 
And I know that it might be contrary to what is taught in some churches, but let me be very clear on this. There are lots of people who think that somehow God's Spirit sort of indwells everybody. Well, you know, some of us have more of the Spirit, some of us have less, but we all kind of have the Spirit of God within us. No, not true. Biblically speaking, the only people who possess the Spirit of God are those who have believed the gospel in response to the Spirit of God being at work in their hearts. And he dwells by his Spirit in those who have believed the gospel. And so when Paul talks about the natural person being unable to understand spiritual things, what he's saying is is that this person can't understand it in terms of receiving it and believing it and experiencing the new life for themselves. Uh, Unregenerate people who, by definition, don't have the Spirit of God just can't get it. You understand what I mean by that? Like, you know, we talk, about, talk that way in our culture sometimes. If somebody, we're trying to explain something to someone, and, and we explain as best we can, and they still look at you like, you know, a dog at a wedding. <laughs> right? And, and, and you go, I guess he just doesn't get it. Right? Some of you, when I was talking earlier about guns, you were looking at me just that way. (laughs) I do not get the appeal. If you're a gun guy, you get it. If you're not a gun person, you just go, "Eh, as Pastor Joe and his weirdness again. You know, uh, and what Paul is saying here about spiritual things is kind of the same thing. That being a natural person with a human fallen nature keeps you from understanding spiritual things in terms of receiving them for themselves. So like as an example, I have lots of commentaries and lots of stuff in my library. And some of it is written by evangelical believing Christians. And some of it is written by people who wouldn't know Jesus if he walked up and shook their hand. Now some of these guys are even though they're unbelievers, they propositionally understand what the text says and what it means. But they've never embraced it for themselves. And so they can explain to you, well, this Greek phrase means this, and this is what this verb tense is, and this is how all this fits together, and this is the way that what, is, what Paul is saying. But they believe precisely none of it is actually true. They're just somebody who kind of gets excited by the idea of parsing Greek verbs, I guess. But nonetheless, they don't really apprehend the things of the Spirit of God. And you can see that in some of the conclusions that they draw. You know, it's like trying to explain the taste of Godiva chocolate to someone who's never had a Hershey bar. You just can't even, you know, well, have you ever had a Hershey bar? No. Oh, rats, because it's, it's kind of like that, only a whole lot more so, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, you know, it's similar, but way better. Uh, they might get it in theory, but the reality that you experience is far different than trying to explain it to somebody who can't and hasn't experienced it. And uh, I want to look here, what about this bit about 
a spiritual person judging all things but being judged by no one. I think what Paul's saying there is, has two aspects. On the one hand, he is saying that a Christian who is filled with the Spirit can understand all kinds of things, but particularly those things that are God's ways, including things that were formerly hidden but now are made clear as the Spirit of God has come in. And on the other hand, an unbeliever comes to all kinds of inaccurate judgments, including about believers. He mistakenly concludes, as an example, that the cross is foolishness and therefore regards Christians as fools for believing in it. But the spiritual person is not concerned about these things. It isn't the world's judgment of him that matters. Why? Because though the world might think that the cross is foolishness and the wisdom of God is weakness and foolishness also, the spiritual person knows that the opposite is true. And because we have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ literally indwelling us and revealing to us the power and glory of what might seem foolish to somebody who doesn't have the Spirit. Make sense? Hope so. If not, see me afterwards. We'll try to clarify. All right? A few things I want to share with you here by way of application as we close. Number one. The gospel is all-powerful to bring salvation all by itself. Our job is to make the message clear and get out of the Spirit's way. Our job is to make the message clear and then get out of the Spirit's way. You know, there are all kinds of ways and efforts these days made by people to try and save people and bring them to faith in Christ by what I would call the wisdom of men. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to just have a blanket criticism of people trying to show that Christianity really is a blessing and a blessed way of living. But sometimes people make promises, say things like, well, if you come to Christ, well, you're going to have material wealth. If you come to Christ, you're going to have good health. You're going to have a perfect marriage and, and on and on and on. On, you know, on Christian TV, some of those guys are the worst about that. Uh, and I think even worse than that are what I would call the emotionally manipulative. You know, They get kind of a big rah-rah fest going. And they try to convince people by manipulating their emotions to turn to Jesus. And the thing is, is that sometimes people find the Savior in spite of all the method that's gone on to make that happen. But when we engage in that kind of thing, it's as if we don't believe that the Spirit of God works through the message of the gospel that He has given. And we've got to somehow help God out. Well, you know, I know he can't lead anybody to faith in Christ by himself. And so we've got to come up with some kind of a complicated way of going. And then maybe we'll be able to kind of, you know, seduce somebody into believing in Jesus, if you will. But the gospel is powerful. Especially as it works through the Spirit of God in a person's life. And if God wants that person saved and you share the gospel with them, just get out of the way. 
They are coming to faith in Christ because the, the Spirit of God working through the gospel God gave is going to produce conversion in that person. You don't have to crank it up in people somehow. And, and so my encouragement to you would be this. Share the gospel. Be clear. Be bold. But then watch the Spirit of God work. You don't have to stress over it because you can't save anybody. Amen? God can save, on the other hand, everyone He wants. And everyone whom He has called will come to faith in Christ as He calls them to Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our job is not to, not to see what we can come up with in our wisdom as a way of, of trying to convince people to follow Jesus as if it's some sort of a horrible thing, and we got to, you, know, you know, here's a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. Uh, that's not our job. Our job is to be clear about what the gospel is, that God loves them, that they are lost, and they need a Savior, and this is how you find Him. And then let God's Spirit work. Number two, don't be surprised if you are mocked and regarded as foolish for believing in Jesus and living out the gospel with your life. Don't be surprised. This is the expected outcome of being a believer in Christ. Nothing about the gospel, nothing about the Christian life comports with our culture. Amen? Nothing about it. is something that people applaud, especially as it relates to moral things. None of that is going to get applause. And John Calvin des described a believer confronted with the gospel and rejecting it as like taking a donkey to a concert. He's uninterested in the music and disrupts it with his braying commotion. People without the Spirit cannot, of their own power, bridge the gap between their natural human understanding and the transformation that takes place when a person is indwelt by the Spirit. And so share the gospel with them, but don't worry about their reaction. It's not your job. If they mock, let them mock. Um, because here's the thing. It's not just the gospel that they're rejecting, but other things too things that grow out of it. Let me give you an example. How many of you have read these verses? Ephesians 5, 24, and 25. This is what it says. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, lots of people have a problem with those verses. You want to know why? Because they aren't written to them. They aren't written to them. They are written to us who believe the gospel and understand how the gospel works itself out in a marriage. And to the worldly, they don't make any more sense than the gospel does. And so if you try to live them out, you're going to be mocked. Particularly if you're a woman, by the way. Everybody's down for the husbands lay down your life for your wives. But wives submit? Uh-uh, baby. 
Not in our culture. But remember what Paul says here. That God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. And God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. And you have the Spirit of God within you. And so you cannot help but stick out in the culture. And the thing that the nail that sticks out is going to be pounded down. And you should just expect that. And then when it happens, praise God. You know why? Because it means that you are marked by the Spirit of God and you actually live it out enough that people notice. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Praise God. Take it as the mark of the Spirit within you and rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father,